Welcome to Wisdom of Wanderlust, the podcast for travelers by travelers. I'm Michael Bennett, co-founder of ExplorerX. As a seasoned traveler, coach, and educator, I've dedicated my life to supporting people just like you and becoming the hero of their own story. And I'm Robin Goldblatt, a lifelong globetrotter, avid outdoors woman, and health nut, driven by my relentless curiosity and compassion for our world. Join us as we explore and discuss how to travel better and how to live a better, more fulfilling, and more mindful life. Hey everyone, welcome into Wisdom and Wanderlust. Today we're going to be speaking with our good friend, mentor, and advisor, Dr. Don Mankin. Don has filled many roles in his professional and personal life, from psychologist to aerospace engineer to educator, futurist, and most recently, award-winning travel writer. What all of this has in common is Don's commitment to innovation, to new ideas, and to new ways of looking at how we live and work. Don has explored the furthest reaches of the planet, and his adventures have taken him to over 70 countries in all seven continents. In our conversation today, we're going to talk to Don about some of his most memorable travel experiences and the lessons he learned from a lifetime of travel. We will dive into how to travel like a travel writer, but also in true Don fashion, there's going to be some talk about beer, drugs, and Jewish psychologists. I cannot wait for this conversation, Robin. Before we get started, uh, for those of you that may be new to ExplorerX, we invite you to visit our website, explorer-x.com. If you have any questions about the podcast, about traveling in general, reach out to us at hello at explorer-x.com. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media at GoExplorerX. Thanks, Michael. I am super excited about this chat with Don. So let's get into it. You know, you and I have known each other for over a decade now, I feel. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You've got a background as, a, as an aerospace engineer, right? And as a futurist and as an educator and, you know, an author and all kinds of other stuff. And we're going we're gonna to show Psychologist. Psychologist. What, what else did I miss? I think that's it. But actually, I I would put psychologists first because I I think that's really I I I, I look at the world and I, I look at uh, the trips and I look at what I do through a psychological lens. I mean, it, it really I, I realized that I hadn't thought about that. But when I started writing that paper about traveling like a, a travel writer, I realized that my perspective on travel is as much shaped by my background uh, as a psychologist as it is by anything else. And you, I mean, throughout your career, that's what you spent the most time doing, correct? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I also realized that even back before that, you know, even when I was in engineering school, um, I think that I, I, had a, I had a pretty strong psychological orientation. I mean, um, no, not as a clinician. I mean, even though my friends would come to me with their problems, you know, asking me to help them. But I've, I've always viewed the world through psychological lens, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a Jewish thing. How so? Well, actually, um, most psychoanalysts, psychotherapists, and psychologists are Jewish. Well, I would say most, but we're we're heavily overrepresented. You know, given that we make up two percent of the total population of the United States, we probably make up thirty to forty percent of the total population of uh, of psychologists in the United States. Wow, so, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the number is, but you know, I do know that. Uh, that you know, well, you know, Sigmund Freud's, you know, influence, so um, or whatever. I, you know, we we could go back. We could. That's another topic. But I think I could I could venture 
uh, an explanation, an explanation, you know, but uh, that's, uh, well, let's do it. I mean, we have, let's do it. What is your explanation? What's your venturing? Well, you know, um, the, uh, uh, historian, I think his name, I think his historian, Simon Shama, he's a, an Englishman who's written the children of the book or something like that. He's written a couple of books about the history of Judaism. And, uh, what he talks about is that the, that the, the defining characteristic of Judaism is the book, the book, he calls it. And it's, uh, the Torah, but but more than the Torah, the Talmud, which is a uh, a commentary. You know, the Torah is the Bible. You know, it's it, it's what was handed down by quote God. But then it's the commentary on the book that is really the core of Jewish you know uh, practice and teaching and learning and all that. I mean, it's 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 the it's the explanation. What did God mean? What does this mean? What's the implications? What's a, you know. Um, and, <laughs> In fact, I once went to a, uh, not an Orthodox, but a, a conservative Seder uh, where the guy who was leading it went through every page, you know, everything. We didn't skip a page. You know, in my family, the Seder was over in 40 minutes. You know, you skipped around and, you know, get it over with and then you eat. But this, this went on for three, four, five hours uh, because this guy went through every single page. And on every page, there was a commentary. You know, well, this is what the controversy about what does this mean or why do we do this and all that. And, uh, you know, after a while, it was enough already. I mean, it was interesting for a while. But uh, but in any case, that's the uh, the characteristic. You know, it's probably the defining characteristic of, of uh, Judaism is this, uh, uh, or as Simon Shama calls it, the, uh, the, the book. You know, and I think that, that what that does is it, it, it creates a reflective mindset, an analytical, reflective mindset. You know, mindset where you're you're always thinking. You know, what does this mean? You know, how does this how does this relate to me? How does this pertain to my life? You know, how do I interpret it? And you know, you're raised with that, and that becomes part of your, uh, you know, it becomes part of, of who you are. And so uh, that is the same. It's very similar to you know the psychological mindset. I mean, if you if you're studying to be a psychologist, and and I wasn't a clinical psychologist, so I you know so I was never involved in analyzing anybody, but you know, even as an organizational psychologist, you're thinking about, well, um, what do people want? You know, how do you get them to perform in certain ways? You know, how do you uh, motivate them? You know, so it's still, it's still a psychology. It's still trying to understand what's going on in here. And not just for you, but for, you know, people that you're, that you're working with. So I think that's the connection between <laughs> Judaism and psychology. I just made all that up. You know, that was completely off the cuff. I never... <laughs> So you shouldn't say that. We all would have been believing no, that's you. That's pretty we, good. We, I oh no, I, yeah, I believe it. You know, but I think. Well, that's not true. I have thought a little. I have thought somewhat about it, but never, never to the extent that I just, you know. And that's as far as I'm going to be able to go because I'm basically very superficial. You know, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> do, do, would you consider all that a blessing or a curse or both? Uh, both, because it it does lead you to uh, insight. You know, being thoughtful. And it surely helps my, my, my writing, my travel writing, but it also can lead to being uh, obsessive. You know, I, remember I once went to a, a therapist and, uh, you know, I was complaining that I'm, you know, I'm obsessive. I, I sit at, you know, in bed at night, you know, obsessing about stuff rather than, you know, going to sleep. And, you know, it gets in the way of doing other things. And, and he said, well, think of it this way, that being obsessive is the other side of the coin of being reflective, you know, it's all the same quality. It's all the same processes. It's just is uh, oriented in a different direction. 
Uh, so if you think of your uh, being obsessive as a uh, as, as just a reflection of your of your being thoughtful and introspective and reflective, then it's, it feels a lot less. You know, uh, it doesn't feel as onerous, and that really helped. You know, so now that, so now that I'm whenever I get really obsessive, I think, oh, what the hell? That's just you know, that's because I'm a thoughtful guy. So, sounds a bit and, like and shadow, yeah. Yeah, and eventually you get over it. So. Sounds a, a bit like the shadow, the concept of the shadow in a way, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Well, Don, can I ask you where your sense of wanderlust came from? Well, you know, that's a good question. I've, I've sort of wondered about that myself. I, um, I remember, well, when I was uh, young, and we didn't travel at all. You know, it was a working class working class family. My father got sick when I was pretty young, so we didn't have any money, you know, um, and we, we didn't, we didn't go anywhere. We went to Atlantic city, you know, that was, you know, it was Michael, no 60 mile drive. You yeah, know. yeah. But I remember I read a lot of science fiction. And in fact, that's the reason I became an aerospace engineer because I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to go to the moon and the Mars and, you know, all those other weird places. So I think that's, you know, that's where it started. I also remember uh, two books that I had. I don't know if you've ever heard of these books. Uh, Richard Halliburton. Have you ever heard of Richard Halliburton? He yeah. was maybe one of the earliest travel writers. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, he had a book. Uh, one book was The Occident, which was the East, uh, excuse me, the West and the Orient. And I remember just like read, look, reading through them about these exotic places, you know? Mm. Uh, I, I remember, like, for example, reading about Mecca. You know, the, uh, sure. the stone, you know, the, uh, what do they call it? I was going to say the Kabbalah, but that's Hebrew. Um, I don't know, but, you know, the, the, the big stone that they circle around, you know. Yes, uh, yes, yes, uh, yes. I remember reading about that. I said, God, this is so crazy. This is so weird. It's so fascinating. And I was fascinated by this. And it was because of the strangeness. Uh, you know, it was, it was all so different than my everyday life, which was made up of going to school, during the fall, playing football, um, you know, going to Atlantic City maybe for a week or two or Boy Scout camp. And, uh, you know, it was a very, very mundane, you know, life. Uh, there was really nothing interesting about um, that, that I remember about my life at all. So all these stories about, you know, faraway places and, you know, and, and places that didn't even exist except, you know, in your imagination. I think that was, I think that's where it started. So when did you branch out and get your first real travel experience? Uh, well, I, um, uh, when, I, when, I, when I got to graduate school, uh, I, couldn't, I wasn't going to play football anymore because, I, for one thing, I wasn't good enough by, by a long shot, and probably a good thing, too, because I would have gotten my brains muddled. Um, so, and also, I wasn't crazy enough. You know, I think that's, this is this, the you know, distinguishing characteristic of making the jump from college, and small college, I played small college football, uh, to professional is that you got to be crazy, you know? So, uh, any case, so did I you, did you, I'm going to interrupt you there. Sorry, Don. Um, did you hear, I just heard this yesterday that the wide receiver for the bills played the playoffs with a broken leg. Yes, exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, do you remember Donovan McNabb played the, a whole game, but on a broken ankle, he threw for sure. three touchdowns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I, to be honest here, in fact, here's, here's my, st- so I even, yeah, after I, I graduated, I even showed up for a practice of a semi-pro team in Philadelphia. I just want to say, you know, I, I want to continue playing, you know. 
I want to check it out. And I was there for just one practice. I said, you know what? These people are crazy. I mean, they just like to get hurt. They like to hurt people. And uh, I mean, I, I had a little bit of that, but you know, this is like, it's off the scale. Anyway, so I was in graduate school and I found out about a rugby team. And I had heard about rugby. A friend of mine had played in college. And there was this movie with Richard Harris called This Sporting Life about a professional rugby player, which is a great movie. And so, um, you know, I met these guys and, uh, at a party and they say, you know, yeah, we're playing uh, um, tomorrow, I think it was, Saturday. So bring your football cleats. And, you know, I thought, well, I don't know. I don't know how to play the game. And I showed up and I figured I'd just be standing there watching, you know, see what this game did. And <laughs> they put me in. <laughs> and I, so I, I didn't know the rules. I didn't know anything. And uh, <laughs> so what they did is they put me in a position that was close to the, uh, the uh, sideline so they could yell at me to tell me what to do. And it's the position that is comparable to a – a wide receiver or a halfback. Now, I never resembled a wide receiver or a half, halfback. I mean, I looked like this. I mean, but it was the... You're a lineman. I was a lineman. Yeah. But it was the, it was the position that was closest, closest to the sidelines that they could yell at me. So, you know, tell me what to do. And so, so I, played. I had no idea what I was doing. And at one point, I actually threw a block on somebody, <laughs> which, you know, it's not, it's not legal in rugby. There's no blocking. Oh. And the guy I threw the block with got really pissed off. And he started coming after me, you know. I said, hey, listen, I don't know the rules. This is my first game. I'm sorry. So, okay. So, right. So, yes, how did it start? So, um, in, in my last year of uh, – actually, I think it was after I graduated uh, graduate school. It was the, the following fall. I traveled with a, uh, a rugby team to uh, United Kingdom for a tour. And so, we played – and. Uh, we played in London. We played in Wales. We played. We played a couple other places. So, so that was the first time out of the country, and um, except I think I'd gone to Canada once for a, uh, a rugby game. But this was it. This is my first international travel. I never had a passport until then. So that was great. I love that. So then I started. So that was uh, that was like September, uh, right before the start of the uh, fall semester at Lehigh, where I was just starting. So this is my first year. And so the, um, in the spring, I needed to get a new car, and I heard about a, uh, 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 a program that the Volvo had where you could arrange for the purchase of a car in the U.S. and pick it up in the factory in, in, uh, in Sweden, in Jotaborg. And uh, so I did. That's what I, I arranged. And I flew over there, went to the factory. You know, they gave me the car. They gave me, I guess, some instructions. I don't know. And then I drove uh, south from Jotaborg to Copenhagen to meet my girlfriend at the time. And then we spent a few days in Copenhagen. And then we just headed back to Sweden and just drove north. I drove as far north as you can possibly drive in, in Europe. Uh, and, uh, uh, and this is through on gravel highway. This is on Arctic Highway. I mean, I'm breaking in a new car on an Arctic Highway. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> We're driving by, you know, I'm driving my new car and I see other cars and there wasn't much traffic, but other cars on the road with windows taped up and spare tires, you know, uh, strapped onto the roof, you know, and, and, and jugs of gasoline and water. <laughs> I'm driving a new car, you know, on this Arctic highway. <laughs> uh, and then you get to, uh, um, I forget the name of the town. It's in Northern Norway. So we drove through Sweden into Finland, 
and then past the Arctic Circle. In fact, I have a certificate I got for um, crossing the Arctic Circle, which was you know pretty cool. Translated from the Finnish, so it's it really very funny reading. And I, I'm not sure. I might have it around here somewhere. I don't know where it is. And then uh, got to this town, parked the car, and then we got on this boat, and it was a several-hour boat ride to this island off the northern coast of uh, uh, of Norway. And you get on a bus, and it takes you around to the northern side of the island, and that's called the North Cape. And this blew my mind. Now, my mind had actually been blown a little bit on the way up there because there's some incredible scenery. And, you know, scenery that I had never seen. I mean, you know, what I saw when I was growing up was Philadelphia, you know, eastern Pennsylvania, you know. Uh, Jersey for, Shore. Jersey Shore. You know, for football camp, we go to the Poconos. I mean, this is, you know, this is my idea of scenery. And here we are in the Arctic, you know, and what's called, what was called Lapland then. They don't, they don't use that expression anymore, but... You know, vistas. See, that was that was it. I'd never had a vista, except maybe on the ocean. You know, when you're down the shore or wherever. But a, a vista that is uninterrupted un for miles and miles and miles. I mean, you can just see. It feels like you're you're seeing to the end of time. And so that's. And then by the time we got to the North Cape, it was just like uh, even more mind blowing because the North Cape looks like the moon. It's like a lunar landscape. I mean, it's a uh, it's a barren cliff uh, overlooking the North Sea, and the cliffs are about 500 feet high. In fact, there's no there's no fencing, and I remember actually getting down on my stomach and yes. crawling to the edge, you know, and looking down. So holy, sh can I say it? Holy shit! Uh, you, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> you know, and looking down, and um, and the other thing about it was it was the midnight sun. You know, it's the middle middle of summer, it's July, middle of July. So the sun doesn't set. And what happens is the sun circles in the sky. So instead, instead of the sun setting, it, it, gets, it gets low. So you're at dusk, you know, right. dusk with the, the magic colors, you know, that the golden glow, the long shadows, except instead of dusk lasting for 15 minutes, half an hour or whatever, this dusk lasted for three or four hours. Mm. And, and there was hardly, there were some people up there, but, but not very many. I don't know. And so you see some people walking around with these really long shadows, you know, and uh, great color. And this was the very day that the astronauts first landed on the moon. I mean, I had a choice. You know, I could have stayed in some something, some hotel or something like that, and watched the astronauts land on the moon. You know, this was on television. Sure. Or, you know, do what we did. I, so I felt like, you know, I was landing on the moon while the astronauts yeah. were landing on the moon. And so that was it. I mean, that, that, that experience of being there, I said, it, it was like my first exposure to that stark uh, Arctic or polar, you know, landscape, which to, the, to me to this very day is the kind of landscape that I find the most attractive. You know, I mean, tropical beaches are fun and, you know, they're nice. But, you know, for, you know, the kind of scenery that makes me go, wow, is that kind of scenery, something stark and barren and just completely wild with hardly any signs of life. You know, that's a, uh, and um, so that that's what I that's what I experienced. And you, yeah. I mean, to that point, you've spent quite a bit of time, I think, adventuring to Antarctica and Baffin Island and all yeah. those, all those places. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And those are still the um, the most profound in Siberia, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, mm -hmm. those are still the places that still you know resonate with me. And uh, you know, Catherine doesn't like 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 those areas because it's cold. <laughs> 
She doesn't like being cold. So it's basically, it's my thing, you know, I don't, uh, she likes Scotland, you know, I mean, there, there's scenery mm. like that in Scotland. Mm. And if you go far enough North, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, given a choice between hanging around on a tropical Island on a beach or, you know, being um, in Northern Scotland or, you know, uh, Northern Canada or someplace like that, you know, it's, that's an easy, that's an easy pick for mm-hmm. me. I'm right there with you. Yeah. I want to know more about Siberia, but maybe that's for another time. (laughs) That's like, I mean, those kind of places call to me too. Oh, you know, it's incredible. You know, uh, when you're there and, you know, you're standing there and you're looking and you're experiencing it. It's it's like, like, how the hell did I get here? You know? Uh, And and also um, what it is, it's the closest thing to being on another planet that you can get Mm -hmm. to on, on earth. So, you know, if I can trace it back to mm-hmm. my earlier dreams about being an astronaut and traveling to distant planets, that's the closest thing you're going to get. You know, Antarctica, northern Siberia, you know, uh, Baffin Island, you know, these to me are landscapes that I associate with being on a distant planet. So maybe that's mm-hmm. what it is. And it's that feeling of remoteness that you know that there really isn't anybody else nearby. Uh, and I think that's what's but in any case, that, that was that was my first experience, my first exposure to that. And that really just had um, an enduring impact on me. Was there anything particular that you learned or took away from that other than just the sense of wanting to continue to travel that way? Yeah, I think that was it. I mean, I'm not sure that I had any more. I mean, well, I mean, there was uh, all of this did sort of expand my sense of myself. And, you know, listen, that's a very impressionable age, you know. You're, you're 26, 27 at the time? Yeah, so. that's right. I was, I, was, uh, I was 27. Yeah. And, you know, and it was a, I won't say it's an immature 27. I think people 27 are more mature now um, or more advanced than, than I was. But, you know, things are, things have all speeded up a little bit. But I think I felt like at, at 27, I hadn't experienced anything. I've done, done very little. And um, this was really one of the first things that, that I did, except for, playing football, I think, and rugby. I think that that was another uh, dimension. But a sense of myself as as being capable of these uh, adventurous experiences. You know, that sense, you know, that, well, well you, you all understand it. You know, if you think of yourself as an adventurer, that's a very different dimension than thinking of yourself as an ordinary person. Sure. There's something very romantic about it. You know, and also remember, too, at the time, this was 1969, 1970, and um, at that time, uh, you know, this was like the uh, Earth Day, you know, beginning of the Earth Day, beginning of the, the uh, and so this was when, you know, back to the Earth, you know, and this is when the identification with the planet and the Earth and distant places and exploring, you know, internally, you know, in terms of taking psychedelic drugs and external. So that whole sense of, you know, up until that era, being an adventurer was something that was limited to a very few people. Mm-hmm. You know, there were adventurers, mm-hmm. Richard Halbert, sure. you know, others. But for the everyday person like myself, from someone from a middle class or working class background, you know, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't any such thing as being an adventurer. You know, you just got a job, you know, you got married. So this was my first sense of myself as an adventurer, as a potential adventurer. And that 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 was very important to me because I wanted I wanted a feeling of being different. I mean, you know, I wanted something to be exceptional about, um, and that was you know a way 
feeling uh, exceptional. And you so know, there's, I, a, there's a, a quote that I, we say often um, on the podcast and on the webinars, but <clears throat> the only reliable source of action is how you see yourself and how you see the world. That's right. Yeah. And so what you're saying sort of reminds me of that, right? In the sense that you began to see yourself as an adventure, as something yes. different, right? And so, yeah, and as an adventure, uh, not only in terms of travel, but also uh, in terms of the work that I then pursued. I mean, uh, you know, I came back, um, and it was about a year or two later. It wasn't right away, but I came back and I had this idea for a very unique approach to this. Uh, topic this this area that I was teaching, and uh, so I decided to uh, to write a book, and mm -hmm. it was it very very venturesome. It was very risky because I lost oh I'd say three two or three jobs as a result of that book because it took me a lot longer to to finish it, and you know the the institutions that I was teaching at got a little bit tired of waiting for my book to come out. So so you know what I was teaching. What I was hired to teach was a course in industrial psychology, which is a really boring topic. I was hired because I, I had my background in graduate school was applied psychology. So um, in the department at Lehigh, I was, I was the closest person to an applied psychologist. So I got assigned the industrial psychology course, which, you know, it's about, you know, how to make workers work more effectively. You know, it was sort of a, it's really a topic I wasn't particularly interested in, but it was my, my job. But I thought that, uh, but I, I started thinking about ways that I might make it more interesting. And again, within the context of the time, the, the late 60s, a social, a lot of interest in social change, social justice, that we didn't call it that then, but it was, it was a revolutionary time. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what if I approached industrial, and, and, it was, and also it expanded to industrial organizational psychology, what if I approached it uh, from a, a position of, social change and social welfare and social justice and what would that look like? And so uh, then I started, I, started, I started teaching the course that way and it became interesting to me. It became really interesting. I mean, for the first time in my life, I was really interested in something. You know, up until that point, I was dabbling in psychology and different topics, but I never really got, I never, never got grabbed by it. But now I was grabbed by it. So what were, some of the, what were some of the key theories, topics, or discussions you were having around that? Well... <laughs> I don't know if, if it made it into, yeah, there's a chapter in this book. This is a book on industrial psychology, industrial organizational psychology. I have a chapter on, in here on leisure, you know, how to apply the principles of industrial psychology to create more fulfilling leisure experiences. So, I mean, that, that's, that was pretty out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing I was really interested in, and this was also very personal to me, is what are the characteristics of a job? that make it fulfilling? You know, how do you design more fulfilling work? And what is the impact and the implications of people who are doing uh, fulfilling work? You know, what's the, what's the impact on society of a large, you know, society? What's the impact of people who are, who are not doing fulfilling work? You know, what's the, sure. what's the social impact? You know, alienation? You know, I think we're, we actually see it. I think what happened... On January sixth was a, a manifestation. Was an example of that. Sure, um, but that's that's another topic. So that's the the kind of stuff I would get into. So and 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 so I spent actually after that after I wrote the book finally, and that was what sort of guided the whole rest of my professional career as an organizational psychologist is the whole notion of the meaning of work. Work is very you know. So what's really important to us is our work, not our leisure. You know, 
it can be. But for, for most of us, it's, it's our work. Is it a you matter know? of identity or what? Yes. Identity, getting lost in your work. Now, you know, like when I was growing up, I had one boring job after another. I worked in a delicatessen. I worked as a box boy in an office. I worked collating things. I mean, really just boring stuff. And I was, you know, I said, you know, I, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I got to figure out a way that I could spend my days doing stuff that really, you know, captures me. And that's actually, you know, uh, Michael, we talked about the book Flow, right? Yeah. The the book. yeah. Well, that's yeah. it. How do you create that flow experience in your work? How do you create that experience that when you sit down to write something or to figure out something, that time passes by? It's, it's timeless. You get completely absorbed, and before you know it, you look up, and it's two hours later, and all that time passed, and you, you've been completely absorbed, you've enjoyed it, you've been, you know, challenged, you know. So, that, so what, what did you find? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, well, I'm not the only person who was thinking about this stuff. So, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So what I discovered was an interesting a body of research on uh, identifying the characteristics of uh, fulfilling work. And then I was also at that time, this was also, this is, so this, now, we're, now we're morphing, now we're transitioning into the 70s, the middle to late 70s. And there became, a, there was a lot of interest academically and I think also uh, in government and in business about the impact of technology on society and the technology on, uh, the impact of technology on people, on the way we work, the way we live. This is where futurology started to emerge. So this is when I became a futurist. And so uh, a lot of my, my interest then was shifted to what's the impact of computers in the workplace and how does that change the way we work? How does that change the relationship between the people we work with, the, the flow of work, who we need to collaborate with, you know, how we collaborate, you know, what do you need to do uh, to facilitate, you know, collaboration? And so all that stuff sort of built, you know, on and on and on. And I, I met a couple of uh, colleagues. We did a couple of books together. We did some research together. And, you know, so that, that's what, you know, professionally, that's what I was um, uh, interested in from uh, starting in the early 70s when I was working on my first book up until, the, uh, up until I started being the uh, travel writer in 2006. So, what, what role, in your opinion, does passion play in fulfilling work? Well, passion is the outcome. You know, people talk about fun. You know, fun's an outcome. Passion's an outcome. And uh, what you, what you, you know, what are the characteristics that create passion? So, so, so here, here's a, here's an important um, distinction. I think uh, you have motivational speakers who get up there and 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 urge you to bring passion to your work. You know, and you have managers say, you know, you need to be passionate. You need to be motivated. You know, and you need to be enthusiastic. And my approach is completely different. You don't. You don't motivate people. You don't make people passionate by exhorting them to be passionate. You make them passionate by creating a, a job and a job environment that enables them to find their passion. You know, people like most people like to be challenged. They like to have control over their work. They like to be working on something meaningful. So if you can design work, so me as an organizational psychologist or as a manager or as a dean or, you know, whatever, as a leader, if I can create those circumstances for the people who work for me, then I don't have to worry about whether they're going to do good work because they're going to do good work. And they're not going to, and they'll be 
completely satisfied. They'll be absorbed by it. They'll get, they'll derive great satisfaction from it and they'll work very effectively and they'll be innovative. How did I get off on that? (laughs) Well, it reminds me, I was, I was reading a book recently um, called so good. They can't ignore you uh, by this guy, Cal Newport. And he, he, he subscribes to what you're saying is that this idea that, that, you know, summarizing what he, his hypothesis is that the passion principle is misguided. And this idea that follow your passion and follow your passion and all that stuff um, does not necessarily lead to fulfilling your meaningful work. And more often than not, it leads to heartache and financial distress, right? Mm-hmm. Now, and and his his formula is, as he says, takes a take a craftsman mindset to your job. Exactly. Right. Yep. And and I and I ultimately ideally you also have a degree of autonomy and right. And that yeah. and and the outcome of that ends up being fulfillment, meaning, and, and ultimately, right. maybe in your words, passion. Yeah, the way it, the way that you can bring a craftsman perspective on your job is to you, you give people a job that requires that. That uh, you know, if you give them a de- if you give them a, a deadly job, you know, working on assembly line, it's hard to find passion in that. But if you can find a way to uh, introduce some challenge, some control, autonomy is a very important characteristic for uh, job fulfillment and for life fulfillment. You know, so actually I've, I've, I've applied these things to uh, creating leisure. You know, I wrote an article about retirement uh, mm-hmm. and how you apply principles that we, that we know from the design of work to uh, creating a retirement that is more, more fulfilling and more satisfying. Mm. So in any case, so that's, that's, that, that was the work that I was doing sure. uh, from the early 70s. Now, I no. I don't know to what extent that happened because I had this incredible experience in the North Cape, you know, and made me think of myself as more adventuresome. You know, I, 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 you know that's a leap, you know. But I want to get back to your travel experiences here, sure. and, and and I don't if I'm if memory serves. And look. Uh, for those that are listening, Don and I have shared lots of stories, mostly me listening to Don's incredible stories, having a beer, <laughs> generally an IPA sitting on his front porch in Venice Beach. But I, I don't, if memory serves, your story in Sweden didn't stop in Sweden. Is that correct? Did you continue on oh, that oh, journey? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the original. Because I was, I was in Sweden just last year. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, your Volvo. No, no. Actually, what happened is uh, uh, after a few weeks, I think it was about three weeks or so, and my girlfriend had to get back uh, uh, back to New York, you know, because she had to get back. She she had to get back to work, so I returned the car to the uh, factory. They ship it back. It took about it's going to take about six weeks for it to get back to the U.S. And then I flew to um, to London because there was an academic conference there that I was going to attend. And so I went to the conference, which was really boring. I met a, a, f- a friend of mine, um, somebody I knew in graduate school, and his wife. They uh, said they were going to go. They had a car. They were renting a car. They were going to tour the English countryside. Did I want to join them? I said, oh, sure. <laughs> um, and, you know, they were, they were just as bored with the conference as I was. And so we, um, we drove around the uh, English countryside and into Wales. We, we got to Wales. And uh, at that point, we split. So from uh, someplace in Wales, I could get on a ferry um, to uh, go to Dublin. Mm. And so I got on the ferry, uh, met a met a woman, and this is sort of the way you travel in those days: is that women tried to find a guy to travel with so that they'd have some protection, 
And guys tried to find a woman they could travel with. So when they're hitchhiking, people will pick you up. You know, people, you know, people didn't like to pick up single guys because it was more threatening. So, you know, it's like a, you know, it was, it was a business arrangement. It was a transaction <laughs> and everything and, and other things to be negotiated or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, um, so we, we connected and we spent a few days in Dublin. Uh, but the, you know, and, and our, our plan was to leave Dublin and to hitchhike around Ireland. So we, uh, we got out on the road and, uh, it was on Sunday and Sunday's a bad day to hitchhike in Ireland because everybody's in their car with their family because they're coming from church, they're going to visit relatives. So there's no room. Uh, so eventually, after a couple hours, a car, a battered car pulls up, and two guys uh, in their late teens, I would say, 18, 19, they pull up, and uh, they're Americans. And they, they say, oh, well, give you a ride. Well, you know, we have to be back in Dublin by 7 p.m. because we're having dinner with our relatives. They had, they had cousins, you know, in Ireland. And he said, I'll give you a ride for a couple hours. I said, hey, that's great. At least we're getting out of Dublin. And so um, we get in the car with them. We drive. And they're, not, they're, they're nice guys. They, were, they, they had both just graduated from prep school. or uh, Yeah. And one of them was the, uh, the heir to the, uh, you know what, I can't, I don't think I should mention the name. He was, he was an heir to a, uh, a very wealthy family known for manufacturing pharmaceuticals. So, and he and his buddy, you know, they had just graduated prep school, the parents, and apparently the, uh, the heir was a bit of a, a ne'er-do-well. And so his family was so happy that he finally graduated prep school after several years that they, 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 uh, they gave him and his best friend this trip to, to Ireland. And so they, and then when they got to Ireland, they, they bought a car, you know, it was, they, they wanted to do some stuff. And so, um, so we drive for a couple hours, we pull over to a beach somewhere, we get out on the beach, we get a bottle of wine and, uh, um, Ralph or John, I think it was John, John bring, brings out the marijuana. <laughs> uh, so we smoked the joint, we drank wine and we're all having a good time. And they say, you know what, we'll drive you further. And so we drive for another couple hours. And then at that point, it's, it's going to be too late for them to get back to Dublin for this dinner with their relatives. And they say, you know, do you mind if we guys, if, if, uh, do you mind if we travel with you for a few days? <laughs> you know, you know, they got the car. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> they got the drugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. We don't mind. <laughs> we don't mind. And so that's what we did. I mean, and then it was like, it was one adventure after another. I mean, it was like, uh, later that night, we, uh, by, by mistake, we drove into a ditch on some backcountry road. And this, and this is my first real taste of, of Irish hospitality. We drive into a ditch. It's, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night. So what the hell are we going to do? And we're standing there on the road, looking at the rear end of our car in the ditch. And then this, um, this farmer pulls up you know, with his family, you know, coming back from their Sunday drive or whatever, and says, uh, uh, I live just about a mile or so away. I'll go home. I'll get my tractor, and we'll pull you out. So he leaves, and we're waiting for him to come back with the tractor. And um, and within a few minutes, even before he shows up, it seemed, I think, half the county showed up, and, like, these four burly Irish guys. Now, I'm pretty burly, but, you know, uh, I was the only one in our party who was burly. And these four, you know, Irish guys get behind the car and lift it up, you know, out of the ditch. It's, it's on the road. And at that point, the farmer pulls up in his tractor. And he's really disappointed because he was really looking forward to helping a, a few Americans. Aww. So he says, well, okay, the least, 
we can do is can you you know come back to our farmhouse and we have some tea, you know, tea and scones or whatever. So I'm sure, it's, you know, hospitality. So we go back to the modest farmhouse. And what I remember is on the wall, there's a picture of the Pope and a picture of John F. K. John F. Kennedy. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, so we're sitting there drinking tea and, you know, they're filling it up. And every time my cup is down, they're filled up again. And then it's too late to do anything. They said, we only have room here for, for the girl, you know, but she can stay here in our private room. But you, if you want, you could sleep in your car out in our driveway. So that was it. That was our first night outside of Dublin. And then, uh, you know, then we, it was a few, a few more days of driving around and we end up in, and this was not by plan because we didn't know about this, but we end up in a town called Kalargan for the annual Puck Fair. And uh, the Puck Fair is an annual event that goes back uh, four or 500 years. It started with uh, farmers bringing their cows to the town to, to sell them. And a festival developed. So after four or 500 years of bringing your cows, you know, now, now you have the bars are open. You got food, you know, no food trucks because they didn't have trucks in those days, but, you know, the counterpart. And so, and then it ends up being a three-day festival, uh, which is, and it's, it's known throughout Ireland and known throughout Europe, actually. So people show up every year. The bars, the pubs stay open all night long. And so we ended up in this, this you know, in this, in this town for, um, um, you know, for the uh, the Puck Fair, and had you know some adventures which I could go into if you're interested. But you know, it was it was great. I mean, you know, at one point I'm standing in the pub and it's packed, and I see this guy across the room pointing at me, you know, to his friends, and I thought, hmm, this is not good because you know, back in the US, <laughs> if, you're in a, if you're in a pub or a bar and someone's pointing at you, you said, no, that's not usually a good sign. And then he starts making his way through the crowd, you know, to come to get to me. I'm thinking, mm. you know, so I'm getting ready, you know. So my urban, my urban Philadelphia consciousness is sort of getting ready for something here, a bit of a row. And he, he comes up to me and he says, you know, and I'm going to try and uh, affect an Irish accent, but it's not very, not very good. Uh, pardon me, sir, do you mind my asking, but are you of the Hebraic persuasion? Uh, which actually just killed me. <laughs> Hebraic persuasion. I, you know, I've never heard that expression before, but I know exactly what he meant, you know. And uh, then he explained, you know. So he says, yeah, he, he, he worked in New York for two years, and he was showing off to his friends. You know, what he learned working in New York for two years is that he could spot a Jew across the room. <laughs> you know, he said, well, see that guy there? He's, a, you know, because I was probably the only Jew in that pub. I mean, let's face it, it was Ireland, you know, and <laughs> there's not a lot of there's not a lot of us anyway, but I don't think there were that many in Western Ireland at that point. And I thought it was absolutely the most charming, you know. In a, that it's the first time anybody ever confronted me in a bar about being Jewish. That ended up well, you know. That was a, <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, you know, and there, there were there were other experiences like that. So so then then from there we had, and at this point, I think uh, the uh, the the woman I was traveling with had to get back to Dublin because she was. Uh, she was having some health problems and there was some test results that she needed to get. And so, so she left and it was just me and Ralph and John. And uh, they said, so where are, you, where are you going next? I said, well, I need to get to Belfast because there is an overnight ferry to Scotland. I had been in Scotland the year before just for a few days when we had a break in our rugby tour. We took a few days off with a couple of the other guys. We drove up to Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Festival and I thought it was really great. And so I wanted to go back to Scotland. 
so we uh, so we drive. It's about a two day drive from where we were uh, to Belfast, and this was the time when the troubles were just beginning to heat up in Northern Ireland. So far, nothing had happened in Belfast. And, you know, we didn't have the internet, but we had radio. So we were listening on the radio to find the news to see what's happening. And it was very tense. I mean, we could tell the news reports were not good. And even when we got to the border in uh, getting into Northern Ireland, the whole, the whole atmosphere changed. You know, Ireland is merry and friendly and warm. And at the, and at the border crossing into Northern Ireland, it was like tense. You know, the guards there, they were armed and, you know, and what are you doing? Where are you going? You know, everything changed. And so we get, in, we get into Belfast. And so, and up to that point, there hadn't been any problems in, um, in Belfast, but the problems were in Derry or Londonderry. If, if, you're, if you're Protestant and English, it's Londonderry. If you're Irish and Catholic, it's Derry. So. But uh, nothing had happened in Belfast yet, but I think uh, everybody was expecting it because we're driving down Falls Road towards the... Uh, the ferry dock. I had no idea what the ferry schedule was because there's no internet, and I couldn't find out whether it's three times a day or one one day a week. You know, it would, and so we're driving down Falls Road, which is the main road through the uh, the Catholic section. Yeah, the Catholic section of uh, Belfast, and I could see people boarding up their windows with plywood, which I, I recognized because I had been in Baltimore and in Washington D.C. during the riots that followed the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King. So when I see shopkeepers nailing, board, you know, plywood on their shop windows, I said, oh, oh you know, they're, they're expecting trouble. So I got down to the dock and I found out that there was a, uh, the next ferry was in about two hours. And then the next one after that was about three days. So, you know, I'm going. Now the guys, they decided they wanted to stay. I think they figured they had to get back to Dublin at some point because they had to get, you know, see relatives. They had to go home, you know, whatever. Yeah. I get on the ferry, and it's an overnight ferry. So it's about 10 o'clock at night. The sky's still a little bit light, and I'm on the top deck. because I, That's what I do when I get on boats. I always go to the top deck so I can see. And I'm on the top deck, and I can see the fires, you know, looking towards the city, looking towards Falls Road. I see smoke rising. You know, I see, I see flames. You know, I said, oh, holy shit, you know. And the uh, next morning uh, when we got to uh, Glasgow, um, uh, the, I got a newspaper, and, uh, and sure enough, two or three people had been killed that night before, and the riots, the troubles had begun, you know, in Belfast. And, and uh, about a year or so later, I actually got in touch with one of the guys, and we actually got together, and he, told, he filled me in what happened to them, and they got stuck. They couldn't go anywhere. Um, wow. They found a hotel, and they just stayed in the ho that hotel for several days. One day, they just sort of got bored, and they got out in their car, and they drove out to the suburbs, and uh, they're driving down the sort of road into town, and they see this guy come around off a side street, bloody, waving them down. And, they, uh, you know, they stop. The guy comes up to them and says, are you Irish or Catholic? And they said, we're Americans. And he said, turn around and get out of here. And um, so that's yeah. what happened. I mean, you know, they, they, they got stuck. But, you know, I was in Scotland, so I was, you know, literally scot-free at that point. But... Uh, that's all close. I mean, you know, I could have been, I could have been stuck there for a few days. So, but I, you know, yeah, I knew this was historical. I had no idea just how historical it was going to be. I didn't know it was going to last for decades. You know, after that, I mean, I've been back to Belfast uh, several times since then, um, and I find it a fascinating city, uh, not the least uh, because of its uh, incredible history. Thanks for listening to part one of our conversation with Dr. Don Mankin. 
Be sure to check out part two of our chat with Don as we dive into how to travel like a travel writer, hear more about his favorite travel stories, and glean some of the lessons he's learned through a lifetime of travel. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay adventurous. Stay adventurous.